0: Hello! Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours
1: at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 51 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Hamish Cameron, a lecturer in classics at Victoria University of Wellington. He specializes in the history and geography of the Roman Near East, representations of imperialism in ancient Greek and Latin literature, and the reception of the ancient Mediterranean world in modern games. He has recently published on the pedagogy of tabletop games and has forthcoming chapters and articles on Assassin's Creed Origins, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and Hades. In today's episode, we chatted about how to be a classicist and game designer, the differences between the US and New Zealand academic systems and shared our thoughts on anachronistic adaptations of ancient material versus hyper accurate depictions. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you like what you hear please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to Ancient Office Hours. Thank you so much for joining me this morning or night or, you know, what is time. I just want to jump right in and uh, ask you a little bit about how you discovered classics. Like, how did you get into it? Because it is kind of niche that I feel like a lot of people don't know about until you tell them.
2: That's a tricky question. I... (laughs) I try not to be identified by my job, right? I feel like people should make their identities that is something that isn't kind of constricted by capitalism. And chronologically, I would call myself a, a gamer first, but in terms of like the importance of the two things that I do that are both that I don't both do professionally, I'm an I'm a classicist primarily professionally, and then the game design I fit in around the stuff. So, <laughs> both. In that infuriating way that my students hate. (laughs) So I'm a New Zealander and I went to or did all my undergraduate and previous education in New Zealand. And I think in New Zealand, classics has a slightly higher profile. Um, It is a high school subject that you can legitimately take. Um, And so people know it a little bit more than they do in other places, perhaps. Um, Certainly more than in the US, I think, where maybe it's more common for people to take Latin. I actually, so I did a classics course in high school, but I didn't really think of it. It was just like a side thing. It wasn't my main thing at all. Uh, And then when I, there was a slightly convoluted backstory to it, but I ended up taking history in an undergrad and I took medieval history because I wanted to be a medieval historian. And I thought, okay, well, I need to know Latin so I can read medieval manuscripts. And so I took Latin and then I was like, wow, the Romans are cool so I changed teams (laughs) and then I basically did all the classics classes as well and then did honors and MA and blah 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 and that's and yeah just didn't stop yeah and part of the reason that I decided to do medieval history was that I'd always been into I'd always been into history but I'd never really thought of it as a subject that I could do or I'd always done like sciencey stuff really up and all through high school and uh and here high school is a bit more focused maybe than it is in the US where it's quite general. Not as focused as it is in some places in Europe for sure, where you like really have to pick a stream early on. Yeah, so I'd been into I'd been into history and I always was reading history books and doing historical gaming things from an early age. And so part of what got me into classics ultimately was taking medieval history because I was interested in game things. And medievalisms are a big thing in in classics. So it's interesting. So I can say uh it was d d that got me into classics. <laughs> that's probably too much. It's probably too much to say that. But
1: <laughs> really? Oh, my goodness. That's a new one. And that's really exciting for me because I never get to say that, oh, that's a new one. I've never heard that entry sort of into classics. So I deeply appreciate that. And I have so many D&D like, player friends that they, I know, would deeply appreciate that as well. They can be very
2: complicated, but sometimes there are there's a, there are a lot that are simpler. There's a role playing game for everyone, no matter what your your background and your style and how you want to do it. Uh, it's just a matter of finding the right one.
1: which is totally valid because they are awesome. I mean, really, I wish more people would be like into them, but like I understand it's like a it is kind of complicated. I will admit that I am not a d and d player. I am so sorry. I played <laughs> a handful of uh tabletop RPGs, but when I have, they're really fun they're so complicated sometimes. Like you actually have to really like make you think in a way. And then you're like, wait, there, there's like levels to this. Um, I still have friends who are just like, I don't even know what that is. So I, I I feel like I'm in a pretty good spot. I'm like, I at least know what it is. <laughs> I've always loved video games, but it took me a long time to like find the right ones, I guess. Cause like, I don't know, for a while, I would just kind of tell like play or try what people would tell me. And I'd be like, I, I guess that was cool fun or cool but you know people just obviously had re- have really different tastes in, in mm-hmm. games so um, I would always end up with like I-, I really like certain like 4X type of city builder things but I-, I would say you know again I like the like specific ones so I like civilization but people were telling me to do like Sim City, and I was kind of just like I'd play it for like an hour and then I'd get really bored and be like why would anyone play this this is so boring <laughs> and then I remember Pharaoh came out and I don't even remember when, but I remember that came out and then I saw it and I begged my parents and I was like, um, I have to have this. Can I, and and my parents were super like against video games, you know, they were like part of that older generation that was like, no, 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 all games mush your brain. So no, you can not have or own or play video games. That was a bit rough. I had to wait. And I was like, but where's the logic? I'm a child, so therefore I must be able to play child games. These are games for children, Um, surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly. That logic did not work on my parents. They were just like, no, you can read. You can go out and play. And I was like, okay, okay. So delayed gratification. But with that, actually, if games sort of got you into classics, you know, is it fair to say that like your parents had not as big of a problem as mine with you and gaming
2: i had to wait till i was three to play a game Ugh. (laughs) no no it's only really i think there's an outside chance that my mother will listen to this podcast actually (laughs) so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna rip on my (laughs) mum. it was skeptical i think of the amount of games that i played particularly at high school where i probably played more games than i did actually high school work but it worked out all right (laughs) and i think now that i've published games and have like produced physical things that's like here is a 300 page book that i have written and that people buy that gives a certain amount of credibility to the thing and that's definitely not to say that everybody everybody needs to monetize their hobby because that's a special type of thing and i think you know in the modern sort of gig economy style thing there's sort of pressure to monetize everything you do and that's potentially quite bad but you know it works for me in this particular case <laughs>
1: No, that's awesome. Lucky you. Luckily, we've established now that your parents, they didn't care enough to like stop you, make a concerted effort to stop you from gaming, which is awesome. You know, how did they feel about your interest in classics though? Because I mean... Yes, obviously, New Zealand classics is received differently. It's really awesome that it's a high school subject. I wish I had that in high school. We just have like a general world history that will cover some aspects of Rome and Greece. But then, you know, you do actually have to do the rest of the world, too. So you don't have a lot of time to focus just on the ancient Mediterranean. Is it the same kind of, oh, no, there's that existential dread that, you know, you'll be poor and that you can't really make a career out of classics? Is there that like mentality in New Zealand or is it much more chill? Like, yeah, it's like this it's received the same as like, you know, saying you want to go major in like English or something where people are like, oh, okay, that's hard. But like, sure, it's just another liberal art. So go ahead.
2: I think by the time that I started doing classics, uh, my parents were really just happy to see me doing a subject that I was interested in and actually like applying myself to, which had not necessarily been the case with some of my previous studies. The sort of history classics intersection was the place where I sort of found myself intellectually, I guess. That was a positive thing that they were very supportive of.
1: That sounds about right, I would say. I'm I'm always very curious. Once you get into classics, once anyone gets into classics, you know, the way that you curate kind of your passions and find your topic is always a really interesting process. So, you know, how did you go from this broad world of, if classics is an entire buffet table of gorgeous delicious looking goodies they have the separate table full of the biscuits and then you're like okay i need the biscuits from this small table before i can go on to the main table and then find all the delicious foods
2: it's the person who comes through a line in a in a restaurant that has a queue outside and you're yeah like, oh did, would you like a tiny bit of pancake while you wait to get inside the restaurant and have your big pancakes. Like, yes, yes, I would. Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) How do you choose your main dish? You know, what's, what's your chicken? How did you find your specialty and how did you decide?
2: I mean, I think most, most people do classics in an environment that has a relatively small number of like specialists in the department. And so I think there's an extent to which you're naturally going to tend to head in the direction that is available like if people are offering advanced courses on some aspect of the classical world, then that's the direction you're, you're likely to take. So I have a longstanding interest in ancient religion and sort of ancient history in a technical German sense that I don't actually do that much now, but that's sort of where I started back in my original undergrad institution. Obviously, once you get to a PhD point and you really get to pick something for yourself even then you still have to have somebody around who can supervise the topics my specialty as far as what i did for my phd was the the roman near east and classical geography and borderlands all sort of mashed together and i guess my advisor was mostly just an ancient historian i mean not just she's great she's an ancient historian without a specialty necessarily in those things although she has specialties in areas that are sort of adjacent to those so you get at that point to sort of Start forging your own identity, and focusing on topics that are parallel, routing from maybe the the trunk of, it, of whatever the the things you've done. I suddenly got to a point when I was, I think I'd finished writing my proposal, PhD proposal, and I was into the actual work, and I suddenly realised hey, all of my grad school courses line up, actually. They all kind of point. Like, I did this course on religious space. I did this course on... I did a GIS certificate. I did these other things. Like, oh, they all kind of poked their way towards thinking deeply about geography and space and the margins alongside kind of state structures and this sort of thing and it was that there was this moment specifically where i was able to construct a narrative out of the disparate things that i'd come from that were pointing in a direction that i then went and it's a direction i still kind of go in but I taught it at bates college liberal arts college for three years before i came back to new zealand and thinking about a liberal arts college constructing courses for a liberal arts environment where the vibe is a little bit different in terms of the kind of classes you can offer that's where i suddenly was like hey wait i can bring in my game stuff here too and think about that in an interesting way academic way and really tie that into classics in a way that is appealing to students and useful like intellectually for them to to think through so i guess there's the getting there through what is available to you and following paths that people are sort of laying for you and then starting to branch off yourself and then eventually once you're confident enough in what you're doing just like heading out for that other dessert table, Like <laughs> that other part of the buffet in the next room that you're maybe not supposed to go to, but now you can, because who's going to stop you?
1: Oh, I love that. I love how you brought this really great answer back to food. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why I'm still so hung up on the food thing, but it's fantastic. And I just, I love it so much.
2: Food is great. That, that's what your podcast is about now. It's a food word that rhymes with Ozymandias. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really cool and really interesting. But I think it's also really good to hear because I think one of the the top things I hear, especially coming from the U.S., is there's a lot of concern from students that like, oh, but classics. It just feels like there's like two ways you hear of it. It's either the path is already set out for me because I'm you know going to be stuck taking these like standard courses, so I can't put my you know individual spin on anything, and I just have to take what's there, which people obviously are kind of like, I don't really want to do that. Or there's some people who are like, you know, it's too broad. And I, there's so many course offerings that I don't know how I would center it on, you know, one specific focus. And then I've had conversations with people in my department who felt like, you know, it took them at least the first three years of undergrad to kind of figure out, you know, okay, what path am I taking? And I mean, I was just lucky that my university was one where you didn't have to like declare your major or your track until like halfway through junior year. So like you're three and a half years in before you have to actually Mm -hmm. make a decision. So I find it interesting how some people really appreciated that and some people really didn't like it. And they were kind of like, I wish they forced me to pick something a little earlier just because it would help you know, set their own direction. And I would say I kind of ended up in that camp Because I mean, I sort of knew where I wanted to go. But by junior year, my path was just really unorthodox. And there were some, I had some health issues. And then there was like study abroad that was factoring in. So essentially, I like didn't declare essentially my track until the last moment possible. Also, I ended up doing a fifth year in college. So technically, my timeline was also set back. So I had the time built in. But I ended up getting like health issues right when I was supposed to be starting my languages and I was like well this is a really crucial component if you want to be you know in philology if you want to do the Greek track or the Rome the Latin track because I missed some school I like didn't have time so then I kind of was forced into picking like the classical civilizations track essentially I don't really know how they let me do this but I just know that they let me graduate without taking an ancient language. I did fit in eventually a semester of ancient Greek, but that's really unorthodox for most classicists. So yeah, I was like, don't, don't, nah, don't do what I did kids choose early, but it is, uh, it it is nice to know that, you know, you can, you can like put your own spin on things. It's not like a set destiny. Like, yes, you do have to play nice with what is available to you at your institution. How big is your classics department? Ours, even for a huge university was quite small because you know, Classics is not super popular subject, which I find obviously really sad. But what you know, what is a big state school in the middle of uh, like rural Missouri going to really do about that? So, I know that you also do game design. So, since you were thinking, you were already in that mindset of you know video games and historical video games, and then you know it's just like perfect that you you happen to be doing this like super awesome academic degree. I know archeogaming as a subfield is quite new comparatively to like the rest of the field so you know were you already thinking though when you were like going through your PhD of like ways to integrate games or were they still quite separate at that time to you where you were like I have one here and I have my other interest here and they kind of you know can talk to each other but not really
2: yeah no they were quite different I mean whenever you move countries to for any reason, frankly. But to do a, to go into a PhD program, which is what I did, you suddenly thrust into a whole new environment. You have to make a whole new set of friends. I mean, it's not just about PhD programs, right? Obviously, this is a thing that you encounter all sorts of times through your life, different times. But as, as somebody who is into mostly analog games, so tabletop stuff, I guess aside from the community they had of grad students in the place that I'd moved, any other friends I made outside that, it was quite easy to do through gaming, right? I'd go to a game convention and meet people, right? And so the game stuff was really that kind of thing that I did outside of university to keep myself sane for for the doing the PhD thing, right? And I think it's really important for grad students to not just do the thing that they're studying, right? And to have a life outside that, if only for... I guess the balance, right? Or keeping, keeping yourself like feeling the pressure of grad school all the time, right? So you can step out, try and step outside that as much as possible, which is very hard. But yeah, so they were very much separate things. I hadn't really thought about integrating them at all until, I think until I started writing applications, job applications for liberal arts college, actually, because then I was starting to think about like, oh, what would be a innovative way to do something different in a classroom, right? That could, not just like, okay, here's Roman history, blah, 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 blah. And it was when I was in an, in that kind of environment that then I was really thinking about it. They were definitely entirely separate things. And for a while, the game thing was my plan B as well. Like, oh, if I decide that I don't want to finish this PhD or I can't finish, like if I fail the PhD or something like that, right, then what am I going to do? And so there was a moment where I was like, okay, if I, how much money do I need to make from this in order to live in some super cheap place in the middle of New Zealand, right? Where there's no, like, you know, <laughs> those doing that sort of calculation at times, because when you're in, doing in a grad program, you have the the moments where you're like, is this all worth it? Could I be using my life better than this? Um, and as it turned out, I'm pretty happy with the way it turned out for me, but I am lucky in that I got a permanent job at the end of it. So that is absolutely a super lucky thing. And I feel grateful for that constantly <laughs> every time I think about it, especially right now.
1: No, for sure. And I mean, that is something that, you know, I have friends in PhD programs and they're like literally looking at this job market, this world, and they're just going, you know, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could get a job either in my field or even something related. So I have a lot of friends who are kind of confronting maybe they should look outside of the field. I I have one friend who her joke is she's just going to move to Silicon Valley and work for Google and then make a nice big fat paycheck. And then she'll just, you know, go to Greece or Egypt or somewhere exciting for like two months in the summer. And then that's how she'll stay connected to the classics world. And I was like, you know, that doesn't sound half bad, actually. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll work outside of the field if it means like taking two months off to just go vacation through all my ideal destinations.
2: One of the things that's most important about doing a PhD program actually is understanding that the job market is rubbish and being open to other possibilities as you go through. Like, okay, this classics PhD is intellectually good for me and I am enjoying it. And if I decide that any part of it, any part of the surrounding stuff or the job market is bullshit.
1: No, you can swear.
2: Then like pull the plug, right? Um, And I mean, you want to push yourself in a program, but not at the expense of your health and not at the expense of all of the various other ways that a PhD program can apply pressure to you or be a toxic environment. Um, And I think it's important to have a sort of clear sense about what your boundaries are, frankly. Um, and how to navigate that. And that's tough. I think overall, it makes the process more rewarding if you're not thinking, I am only successful if I come out of this with a tenure track job. Because the reality is that most people are not going to come out of it with a tenure track job. But they are going to come out of it having spent several years doing something they love, hopefully, and with a PhD that they can then apply for other things. Or not without a PhD if they don't want to go all that way or can't go all that way for whatever reason, that there's still like intellectual value and they are not a lesser person for not having like achieved, not having reached the golden apple at the end, right? That's just one of the many outcomes that you can have. And I think people need to be, we as a field need to be better about supporting that.
1: No, I think that's a really valid point. I mean, I'm, currently in grad school but i'm not for classics i've definitely confronted that even at the at the master level sometimes you know i will be let's see next week is finals week mm. so you know we're gonna go into it and kind of just actually freaking out so badly about you know <laughs> what is gonna happen with my finals you're
2: gonna own it lexi
1: thank you i you're hope you're gonna so. own it you're <laughs> gonna
2: eat the best cake on the buffet table and you're gonna be like yes i'm covered in cake and
1: i'm a winner Yes. Okay. I love it. I love the positivity. I, (laughs) yes, that that's what I'm here for. So yes, I will have finals and then, but it's like, there's, there's no rest for the weary is what I'm telling everyone because Mm -hmm. the minute Mm -hmm. I finish my finals, I have a term paper due in early June Mm. that I then need to finish. Uh, and then after that I get to start writing my thesis. So I'm like, there's literally no rest for the weary. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then, so I'll be writing my thesis all summer and then hopefully I will be submitting it on time at the end of September. And then hopefully I will pass and uh, get my master's. But it's like, you know, even me just sitting here thinking like, oh, no, what did I do to myself? Should should I have taken this like advanced, like accelerated one year program? Mm -hmm. I know that traditionally in the U.S., our master's programs are two years. So you don't sit here after one year being like, oh, my gosh, it's all on me now. Or, you know, now or never. You know, I think it's really good to hear a perspective of like, it's okay. It's it's reassuring, you know, to hear you haven't failed in life. If for whatever <laughs> yeah. reason it doesn't work out, mm-hmm. now I'm I'm pretty confident it will work out, um, just because I believe in myself. But at the same time, things happen, so it's it's very good to hear. But like with that though, you know, when going into a PhD program, I know that there's also like a taboo about things like ABD status why i don't i i'm I'm constantly fascinated with why people don't really want to talk about it why is it not normalized like maybe it's not a thing in new zealand maybe it's not taboo but in the states like i've noticed there's definitely like a trend of people being like there's this mindset of like you went to school and you got the thing or you went Mm -hmm. to school and then you sort of tried and then you just sort of quit
2: Mm -hmm. what do you mean what do you mean by a taboo i
1: guess like people are People are always like willing to talk about the success, right? But then it's taboo in that, like, you don't want to talk about how you went to get the thing. And then, because it's kind of just like considered oh. like the, oh, you almost made it over the mountaintop, but then you stopped. Right, right, right. And so, you know, if you don't.
2: So you mean a taboo on admitting that you, that's as far as you got and then you stopped?
1: Yeah. And just like you you don't want to like admit that really in a a job or like, you know, and I think that anything that you do, I think it's worthwhile. So like I wouldn't be afraid to, you know, go to like a job interview or something and be like, oh, yeah, I went to school. I was trying to get my Ph.D. I attained all but dissertation status. Oh, but you know what? Like I didn't finish, you know, and I don't know why, like you not finishing would make you somehow less qualified to like do a job. But for whatever reason, people would be like, oh, okay interesting and like move yeah.
2: on. i mean I hey, i think if if somebody thinks like that you probably don't want to work for them or with them frankly that seems weird to me i think the main thing if you are in the position where you have got as far as abd and then decided to leave then think clearly about why you decided to leave and make that part of your narrative about your job like so that when they ask oh so it says here that you were abd but you didn't finish your phd why is that don't say Oh, because I was too lazy to finish my PhD, which is never going to be the reason. Maybe it's that you reevaluated what you wanted in life, and what you wanted in life is to do this other thing, right? And that's like people change their minds about uh, what they're doing, what they want to do with their lives, or what career path they want to take all the time. But yeah, I think this is part of the part of the problem that often when people there's something about the whole grad school process, the internal reinforcement, I guess, of the idea that okay right you're in the you're in the tube now when you come out to the other end you're going to be a doctor and if you're not then I guess you failed a that's not healthy and b that's not accurate the other way around even (laughs) but at any rate I think I don't think people outside of PhD programs think like that I think people in the quote-unquote real world yeah I I think people who are not in academia don't have that same hang-up right I think that's a very much a grad school, internal grad school hang up that maybe some people who go on into academia continue. They're like, oh, well, I got my PhD. So why don't you just knuckle down and work harder? Because clearly that's all you need to do, right? That attitude that you sometimes see, I I think that's toxic and that's bullshit and, you know, shouldn't listen to it. If you spent four out of five years or four out of, or seven out of five years or 10 out of five years working on something and then decided that you didn't want to take the next step, good on you. You, you made a decision and work out what you want to do with your life and then make that into your, into your narrative. That would be my advice.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it really is a very like highly academic thing to think, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, this person is not good enough just because they didn't finish the thing. But we don't like, like people just don't talk about, which is, you know, scholars and they like people in academia are usually so in academia that it it's very hard to think non-academically someone who isn't in it because I will sit here sometimes and I'll be on a conversation with family and I'll say something that's probably a super academic worry about perception or something, you know, and people will be like, how did you get there? Because I would never assume this or I would never think that, or that's just not, you know, Mm -hmm. like normal for anyone else. And I'm like, wait, really? So there, (laughs) there also is like, there's like the classics bubble or, ancient world bubbles what i call it mm-hmm, just cuz i'm mm-hmm. like we often just get so set in like the mindset of you know how we were taught or you know the mm-hmm. things that you see and then you know it's like oh wait it's okay i had to be told i had to be reminded that alternative tracks to academia is like a valid thing so when i graduated And then when people were like, what do you mean you're not going to continue on classics (laughs) Uh at the graduate level? I was like, no, I'm going to just find other ways in my life to be classics adjacent, you know, and people were kind of just like, oh, okay. And I guess I hadn't been expecting my non-academic friends and family to just be like, oh, no, that's awesome. Like, that's great. I was kind of sitting here being like, oh, God, they're going to think I'm like the failed classicist who's just like the wannabe just doing other things because, you know, I couldn't make it. You know, that was like a highly specific fear, but Mm -hmm. it was completely unfounded. I mean, you know, there are definitely uh, advantages to be alternative academia. I mean, I know it worked out for you, but like, was there a point where you were seriously looking into alt-ac or did things sort of just happen in a way where you didn't have to actually? You didn't have long enough to worry about that.
2: No, I definitely did. Um, As I was getting close to the end of my PhD, I never had American citizenship or residency beyond my student status or whatever jobs I had after that. So there was definitely a a moment at the end of my PhD where I was like, okay, what am I going to do next with a classics PhD? Because in in America, I think there's more you can do with a PhD maybe than there is here. That's probably not true. That's just probably because I haven't really looked <laughs> at what, or tested the job market here in New Zealand with a PhD. Um, and I do certainly know several PhD having friends in New Zealand who have jobs in, say, government agencies or what have you. So that was, that's really just my own thing. But I was looking into other options. I was looking into high school teaching. I was looking into other types of things that one might do. Nothing... Nothing really game related. Although I guess I did kind of look into that a little bit, not in a super serious way. And then as it turns out, I managed to cobble together a series of like local things um in LA for a bit, and then got onto the sort of train of, oh, uh, here's a vap, here's a non non tenure track position, that sort of thing. And it was I mean, it was really skin of the teeth stuff the whole way through. Like I was a couple of times a matter of weeks from moving back to New Zealand before I got a job offer like right at the at the sort of point where I would have had to actually make a decision there was one trip that um, my now wife and I took back to New Zealand where it was when we originally planned it, it was like okay this is a let's go back to New Zealand because we're probably moving here so what do you think of it and <laughs> maybe I'll throw like some things around and when I was there Or just before we left on that trip, I got a job offer for a a place, a thing in in America. So there was lots of that. It definitely wasn't like a smooth path. When I look back, like my CV says that it was a smooth path. But that just obscures the reality of being very close to edges (laughs) a lot of the way through. And I think it's like that for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, that's why I think CVs are really funny because when you look at them and you know, everyone, they work so hard to curate it. So it just looks like wonderful and perfect and it flows. And then, you know, ask anyone and they're like, I had to cobble this thing together because, yeah. oh my gosh, I just got lucky or this happened. And oh my goodness, you know, I was stressed that I wouldn't be able to fill up my CV because I thought I'd be, you know, poor without a job or opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that I definitely understand so i want to get a little into so i know you said uh that you've worked on a couple of games and i obviously we've established that gaming is also a big part Mm -hmm. of you know just what you like and you know who you are so i want to ask you a little bit about the games that you've worked on you know how did those opportunities come along it's hard to walk a line between gaming and classics you know as like two separate things but also being able to work them into what you do. So I think that's really awesome. And I'm sure a lot of other people would be like, wait, classics and gaming? How do I do (laughs) that? How do I do both?
2: Yeah, yeah. So for the most part, I have been a tabletop gamer for since I was Like ten or something like that, and I, when you're a tabletop gamer, you tend to tinker with game design quite a lot. If you're GMing things, it's like, oh, I want to make this special rule for this thing that I want to bring into my game, or whatever. Like it's very much that kind of that vibe, that sort of like indie do-it-yourself thing. I was really interested from about the early two thousands in the sort of burgeoning indie game movement um, that was really coming about, and then when uh, Vincent Baker released Apocalypse World and it sort of like grabbed the scene by the scruff of the neck, really. And a whole lot of people were like really interested in what the game could do and how you could easily turn it into other things other than what it did. And about that time, I that was a moment where I just sort of had a bit of time to fiddle around with things and something caught my imagination. I started just started working on it. And so then I published my first game, which is called The Sprawl, which is a cyberpunk game that is sort of related to my work in that as an ancient historian and classicist, I'm really interested in the way that societies work, in the way that why people do things, how ideologies work in terms of like ancient societies. And so when I'm thinking about a genre like cyberpunk that is about sort of modern capitalism turned up to 11 and how those ideologies work and how they oppress people and those are like interconnected social things right there's a connection there intellectually between those two things but there was nothing historical about it other than the fact that i am an ancient historian and a classicist who is trained to read texts really closely so the way that i wrote the game was basically like reading the core texts of the genre really closely and then pulling out the things that i would want to um like turn into a game it was lucky enough that that sort of hit at a moment that a lot of other people were interested in that thing that I was doing became successful. And on the back of that, I've done a, a few other things. None of the published ones yet have been historical or classical in any way. But they're all using that same sort of skills of like, how do I close reading of a genre and, and apply that in a different system? Like there's a way to which game design is translation. In the same way, actually, that geography is translation. These are the three things that I think about a lot. When you're translating, you're looking at one text and you're trying to encapsulate the meaning in a different language. And there's never just a one-to-one thing, right? It's always like, okay, what are the range of meanings that Virtus has? Which one of those meanings do I think is most applicable in this translation I'm doing right now? And you're doing that all the time. And game design is kind of similar. Like, what are the things here out of this range of things that I think are the most important to focus on. Now, how do I turn that thing into a game form, right? How do I make that fun to do in a way that enables people to engage with it? And I'm going through this sort of like process with Roman stuff at the moment because I'm working on a Roman game for the first time. Whenever anybody hears that I'm an ancient historian in the game world, they're like, oh, do you play games about Rome? I'm like, no, because I never want to be that guy who's like, that's not historically accurate so clearly the way to get around that is to write my game we uh, write my own game <laughs> and i'm actually collaborating on that with a, with a colleague here uh, not a classicist um, but that's also good because it means that i'm not just stuck in like classicist world i'm getting input from from elsewhere we're working on that collaboratively which is cool i forget where i started with that question did i get to, did i answer the answer your question then <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I think you got to the heart of it. I mean, it's it's pretty cool. I was just interested in what kind of games you were you were doing because you know, it's it's a completely different world to classics and it's not what I would immediately think of something adjacent that, you know, you can just attack on, you know, it's not like you're doing classics and then, oh, you know what, I'm just going to add some art history, which is totally what I did, because uh-huh. I did end up getting a, a minor in art history. Mm-hmm. They're quite different, but I like it because, you know, you get that double dipping of like you have your nice humanities, mm-hmm. but then you do have your like y sort of field, whatever. I find it interesting. So you know okay you haven't really you don't want to be that person who just criticizes uh ancient world games <laughs> i don't know like we have a lot of traditional video games you know like the assassin's creed games that people can immediately go see for the gratification mm-hmm. of oh well you know i'm just gonna go into this digital world and play in ancient rome or mm-hmm. ancient greece or whatever Traditionally, I guess, when we think about video games and if, if they were to come into the classroom, you know, you would want something visually sort of applies to it. But do you see there being a good way to bring historically based and accurate, hopefully, tabletop RPG games into a classroom? Like, I know that I'm really interested in how do you bring all forms of gaming and not just stick to sort of one dimensional, you know, standard digital RPG. So, and I'd be really just interested to hear, you know, how would one bring a tabletop RPG into a classroom and have it be more than just like a random fun game or experience you play once and then don't relate to Sure.
2: Yeah. Well, okay. So I've done, I've taught three classes over the years that have um, done this with different types of games. The first time I did it, it was focused on tabletop role-playing games. Uh, the second time it was focused on tabletop board games. And the one that I'm actually currently teaching right now is focused on video games. And if there's one important thing to, to get from all of them, it's that it doesn't matter how accurate the game is. What matters is what it's doing with the ancient world. Um, because the answer, oh, how accurate is that game? It's the same as with film. How accurate is Rome? Well, it's pretty accurate in some ways and pretty inaccurate in other ways. And that's basically the answer you give to everything. It's kind of all right but not perfect right none of these are texts that you they're not sources that you can assign and expect the student to get just read in the same way that you don't give tacitus to someone and say there you go read tacitus now you know about the ancient world you have to talk about like okay who was tacitus what was his context what are his stylistic things what are his biases what is he leaving out what is he including it's the same with games so with assassin's creed like, what are they choosing to represent as the ancient world? Why do they think that represents the ancient world? How are they using those things to represent the ancient world? Um, what are they leaving out? What are they not talking about? These are the kind of questions that I want my my students to ask. And these are the kind of questions that make just about any historical game, no matter how bad it is, quote unquote, um, and some of them are pretty bad, that's what makes them interesting to teach with, that it's a, it's a thing that you are teaching to and around and with, not just a standalone thing on its own.
1: No, that's awesome. I think that's super awesome. And I'd like to see more people experiment with more than just video games. Um, I think it'd be really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be really, really fun. And I agree that it's more important about the experience itself and like how you get people to interact with the ancient world than to focus on its accuracy. I mean... I remember I had this really amazing professor in undergrad. It wasn't like a game per se. She brought in aspects of role-playing. So it was a class on like murder mayhem and images of justice in ancient Greece. And it was all about learning, you know, the ancient law systems and trials. Mm -hmm. And she just, I remember she was like, okay, guys, we're going to reenact these famous trials. Everyone gets to role-play, go away, prepare a thing and... That's a game. Come back and, you know, we'll do it. It was fantastic. I mean, people were, like, really invested in it. And I definitely can, like, think back and say, like, those were probably the most fun classes because we were, you know, invested in it.
2: Yeah, anything that, like, gets you – because know, that's the goal of teaching, right? You, you've you got to get the students invested in their own learning. And so if, you, if that happens by here's a fun exercise – and now that you have been assigned the role of Socrates, you have to go and read about Socrates so that you can portray Socrates correctly. Bam, I just got you to do research. <laughs> Without like, okay, here's a boring essay topic, uh, which I then have to mark a million of them. Yeah, no, I've used that kind of thing in class as well, like a, like a live role-playing game. I had a colleague up in um, Maine who wrote one and I ran it for my class as a sort of like play test. We pretended, the class pretended to be Roman senators for four weeks. And in doing so, they had to read about things and write things about the period and the time and then enact them in the classroom and then reflect on their experiences and reflect on what happened in the classroom and what what was accurate about it and what wasn't accurate, what limitations there were, how some things maybe could never come across in that kind of format and some things could. Um, There's a ton of stuff you can get out of that, that sort of exercise. And yeah, I would say that if you are assigning people roles and there's an element of improvisation about it then it's a role-playing game it's somewhere on the role-playing game spectrum right between live action game and crunchy tabletop war game or something right there it's somewhere in there yeah so that's yeah that's great
1: And I love the scalability of it because that was what I had in undergrad and it was great. And, you know, we just kind of came in as ourselves and we just sort of gave the speeches and whatever. But when I was in sixth grade, I had this amazing teacher who wanted us to really get in character. So, you know, it came down to like bring in a bed sheet, make it into a Mm -hmm. freaking toga and then you can like go and act with your classmates and like really like hype that up and be like, yeah, I am a Roman senator or I am an ancient Greek. So I I love the scalability. So you could do it with like younger children at like the middle school level, high school level, and then you can do it in the undergrad. You can even do it in the grad level, which I love. I don't know if it's like something inherent to like gamers per se, but I definitely found myself gravitating toward the extracurriculars that have heavy role-playing elements. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. like, while my friend would be like, oh yes, I'm going to go to knitting club i don't know i just picked a random thing but i mean and i love knitting so that is not an insult to knitting but yeah she would be like okay i'm gonna do ballet i'm gonna do knitting club whatever i wanted to do model un you know and i had friends who wanted to do mock trial and then people would be like oh, why are you volunteering to do super academic clubs? They were like, don't you want to do less work? Wouldn't you rather like go play some (laughs) ultimate frisbee or some like flag football and join one of those (laughs) clubs? And I was like, yeah, they're fun. And it's like, you know, it's active and they're not less valid, but- There's the whole role-playing element that you go to conferences for like Model UN and I get to literally pretend to be a delegate of a different country. I have to do research on this different country and all of its different stances. And then I get to literally not be me and I get to pretend that I'm a a really fancy representative, you know, or delegation from a foreign country. And I thought that was super cool. (laughs) You know, I realize how like nerdy and cool that is. But yes, I was, I was, nerd
2: feel like everybody, I mean, most people doing classics would be somewhere in the nerdy space, right? So, oh, I'm, do, I'm doing classics and also I'm doing this nerdy thing. It's like, oh, you're doing a nerdy thing already, so just embrace it.
1: <laughs> exactly. I, you know, that's what I say. You know, I was like, when little kid, me and little children think that, you know, calling someone a nerd or a dork was like an insult, I would just be like, mm-hmm. oh, thank you. That's my normal Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Next. Like, <laughs> I, love, I, I love being a dork. And so... I now I've always called myself a proud nerd. So I embrace Mm -hmm. the nerdiness and I, I will say I love people who are just as nerdy and obsessed as I am. So those are the best. Yeah. I mean, I think
2: in some ways that's most people in grad programs, right? If you are, yeah, you want to encourage kids to do outdoor activities and blah, 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 and be physically active and all that stuff. But I also don't think it's a good idea to shame kids for wanting to, wanting to do more academic stuff as well. Right. There's plenty of room in the world for people who want both things. If you are doing research in your own time, then, well, frankly, so were a lot of us. We just didn't call it that necessarily. Like when I was in primary school and I was spending a lot of time reading history books, I didn't call that research. I called that reading. (laughs) It was just fun. I was just like doing what I wanted to do. So sometimes that looks like work and sometimes that doesn't look like work. And that's a very individual perspective.
1: I would agree though. So (laughs) I mean, okay, so we've been talking a lot about games and a lot about history, so now I'm, I'm very, very curious. Are there, like, ancient world classics-themed, you know, like, movies and TV shows that you find stick out really good in their portrayal of the ancient world? Like, you know, if you were to pick, you know, I don't know, like, a top two, three, like, what would you say would be maybe your favorite representations of the ancient world?
2: Hmm. I think I'd have to put HBO's Rome in there not perfect obviously but does a pretty good job of representing some things that don't get represented a lot like just the the opening credits where you get to see the kind of street graffiti and some of that some of that stuff is is really cool have you seen the new Thermai Romai Noa anime
1: no because that I I would have to put up
2: there actually it's it's really good I was not really sure what to expect but I haven't seen the movies or read the manga or anything like that but I really like that. I think they do a really good job actually of portraying Hadrian and his reign and through the lens of this bath architect that obviously not perfect, but nothing is perfect. And it, it's just a lot of fun. Oh, I don't know what a, what's a, what's a movie maybe that I would, I don't know. gladiator's is fun, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll just leave it at two. Yeah. No. I'm sure I'll think of something later. I'll be like, Oh no, I should have said this. <laughs>
1: Don't worry. I know it's a really broad question because there's so much done. Mm -hmm. I will say, yes, Gladiator is actually like my favorite movie of all time. I know it's not like super accurate, but you know what? It's a good story. It's a memorable story. And that's Mm -hmm. what I really care about. So, And I ask, you know, what you really enjoy, because now I want to ask, you know, about the ones that aren't so good. You know, are there (laughs) any that you have like huge problems with? Because, you know, it's maybe a little so inaccurate that it's just not like like what what were they doing
2: i try not to um try not to give too much of my mental space to things that i find not valuable in some way and i'm not saying here that like things that are like quote-unquote trashy do not (laughs) fit into that because that's definitely not the criteria i'm using like is this intellectually quality but do i get something out of it so i don't know if i really have like a, a bottom list i used to the clash of the titans remake is still probably the worst 3D movie I've seen, but that's because the 3D was that post processing 3D that doesn't look good and it has nothing really to do with the movie. And actually, I recently read a couple of articles on a day aside in screen media that made me want to go back to it actually and look at it for the story, <laughs> right? Rather than for that i mean with the ones that are bad like i have a i have a fun relationship with bad movies that i really love them a lot of the time so even when i think about like okay the troy movie or the rocks hercules that are but they're not bad they're just very particular modern receptions that focus on political aspects and remove mythical aspects and are doing a specific thing and it happens that that thing is not something that people who are interested in classics are really wanting to see because that's not focusing on the classics. It's focusing on the modern, reusing the material, reusing the material for the modern world. So even those, like I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a bottom list is, is what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that's totally valid as well. I mean, Hey, there is a really good argument for there's some kind of value in everything, even if it's shitty. I only ask mm. because, uh, I, I know I usually say, you know, like, did you see that, gods of egypt movie with gerard butler in it
2: (laughs) i did not see that okay
1: because you know i I did see it
2: i did see that it was listed on netflix the other day and i thought about watching it and then i didn't
1: okay yes it's on (laughs) netflix and i will say it's worth a watch just because it's like one of those that i would classify as so bad that it's good which is really Mm, funny okay so because it's just it's like ridiculous it's a special kind of Thing is all i'll say all right, well, but but, you've but sold me, right? i yes i encourage you to watch it because i think
2: this interview is over i'm gonna go watch the movie right now
1: <laughs> perfect you'll you'll spend half your time <laughs> okay. like like laughing at it because you're like oh my gosh but
2: also... I, i'm imagining now it's just gonna be me sitting on the couch watching this movie occasionally pausing the movie and just yelling with my fist in the air
1: lexi <laughs> i'm so here for it yes i i i yes i i I will be mad if this doesn't happen now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, I'm on notice.
1: <laughs> um, okay, so I oh goodness. Since you're the one of the few people who's into Rome, I like I get a lot of, you know, different ancient Greece type things. So I'm I am curious though, from the Roman perspective, how did you actually find the uh the Eagle? I think it was done in twenty thirteen with James Oh William. yeah,
2: yeah. That was one of those two movies that were both on the similar topic, right? About the Lost Legion kind of Yeah,
1: where he has to go and like redeem his... Yeah. So, you know, how from a, you know, sort of more... I haven't watched it. Really? Okay.
2: I kind of missed both of those. And I I can't remember why exactly. I think it might have been that they came out just at a time where I was really busy with something else. Like, which is... So there was a period between basically all of my academic... Education between like honors and the end of my PhD, I didn't play computer games because I just didn't have time, and I also didn't really watch that many movies and that's also well, that many TV shows during that time. I was I did my graduate school in Los Angeles, so I did watch a lot of movies, but not those for some reason.
1: Fair, fair, yeah, no, <laughs> I just it, I just find it funny because they made some really um, as I would describe them curious. Wardrobe choices. Mm. It's very funny because I know that a lot of people when they watch like classically themed uh, you know media, whatever, some people will hyper focus on like what are they wearing? But a lot more people are will tend to focus on like either storyline or just like the setting of the world around them. Like do the uh-huh. buildings look ancient, you know, the the sets and stuff. It wasn't like so grossly out of place that you're like, what is this? But also I was like, okay, this is definitely way more modern than mm-hmm. anything they would have had. Yeah. I just, I, I tend to notice the smaller details. So I thought it was funny. I was watching yet another remake of like the King Arthur story, the one with, um, and it's like really weird, like really weird. So mm. I, I was, kind of, but I was bored and it was on Netflix. That kind of describes uh. how I like <laughs> find half of my stuff. But, and I'm like, okay, but this is like, Arthurian old England and then it's like your Arthur character like walks out in some like modern looking jacket mm. thing with like <laughs> buckles and something that maybe looked like a zipper uh-huh. at some point and I was just like you know I don't really think even even in that era that wasn't a thing um like made out of materials that I'm pretty sure they would not have been able to make look that good so I was just like okay this is Yup. Super realistic.
2: <laughs> I quite like that when it's done sort of intentionally and the whole thing has that vibe. So like a Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, where they've oh. sort of transported the whole thing into a modern, like they're still doing Shakespeare in the sort of like late medieval thing, but the, everything is modern. And ah. so it's, they've sort of, yeah, like a that like that kind of tweak on it. So a, a Roman movie where, I don't, I don't know, like the, that old movie, The Warriors, that's kind of like The Odyssey, but mm-hmm. it's set in 1970s New York, that sort of thing. No, sorry, it's not The Odyssey. It's the Anabasis, it's Xenophon's Anabasis. It, but also that's an adaptation of that story rather than actually doing that story in the Romeo and Juliet way. So I don't know. There's something, something kind of about that that I find quite attractive sometimes where it's less attention to the historical detail in a way that is aesthetically works for the movie. So That's I, true. but a stray zipper, I can see, definitely see how that would. Yeah. Like, yeah. Rubber classes us the wrong way. I did actually think while you were talking about that though, of my uh, worst movie. Uh, yes. uh, have you seen Am- uh, uh, Amazon's and gladiators?
1: <gasps> yes. So yes! bad. So I bad. I remember that. <laughs> I have not seen that in years, but I'm like, Oh my gosh. Wait now. I remember it. Oh, that was terrible. It was yeah, terrible. Like I,
2: I will usually give most movies like my full attention for the time of the movie. I'm the kind of person who like sits down in front of a movie and I'll I'll take it as it comes to me, and then afterwards I'll think about it, and then I'll think, no, that ending didn't work, or this like I didn't like that in some way. But that one, I was just like uh, the whole way through it was just like, what
1: is this? What is this? I think I just remember being very confused. Like I yeah I, yeah. I, I don't think I even formed an opinion because I was just kind of like perpetually in my head just being like, what the fuck's happening? Wait, what, 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 what? I
2: don't even remember how classical it actually is. Well, like Whether there's anything that purports to be classical about it other than the names. But I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> Not really. I mean, I'd have to go back and watch it. Oh. do i want to subject myself to going back and watching it is the (laughs) the actual question yeah like is it worth it just to know you know enough to talk about Uh it maybe i just look up like a summary on google and then not watch yeah i don't know yeah
2: but then you wouldn't get like if it turns out it is like that kind of good bad then then you would have missed out on an opportunity to rediscover the terribleness yourself mm. i probably will yeah, rewatch know, it I'm just, not, just because a convincing argument.
1: yeah i probably will rewatch it just because i mean i really haven't seen like i think i literally watched it when i was in like high school and so i would have had mm, a very mm-hmm. different opinion because I, I knew i liked anything you know ancient or classically whatever so but i hadn't you know picked up my major yet and so i hadn't really learned mm. so no i i think i'd maybe not enjoy but i'd find it curious to Mm-hmm. actually watch it and see how my opinions have changed maybe it'll be 10 yeah, times yeah. worse than i first saw it. <laughs> right well
2: i I mean i mean watch it with the idea of like what are they why are they using classical material for this that would be what i'd say anytime you encounter like a bad piece of classical material see what they're what they're doing what they're doing with it and like why are they doing that and what does that say about the relevance of classics for whatever story they're trying to tell that's that's how you rehabilitate rehabilitate any piece of classical media for my for my mind
1: <laughs> that's true you know and i i will say though you had a point about sort of anachronistic shows and films i because i was realizing as you were saying that no there, there are a few like that that actually i really enjoyed my fate one of my favorite uh, films growing up was she's the man which is obviously mm-hmm. like 12th night retold but mm-hmm. like in a really mm-hmm. contemporary mm-hmm. american setting and uh, yeah. I, I did like it. but also there's something a little different about like shakespeare versus like anachronistic homer but you know that doesn't mean that it might not be good if you did it i think you just have to find Mm -hmm. like the right way to do it yeah you know so i don't know and all of
2: these all of the things like that do speak to the continued relevance of classics even if they're taking even if they're not doing things about it that we as classicists like agree with like why would you do why would you take the gods out of out of the iliad or whatever like even if they're doing things that we may or may not like it's still interesting that they are doing things with that material right that is there's that is still relevant enough to use those things in a modern context in some way right and that's interesting i think
1: yeah i think you know obviously for the ancient world people have like real strong opinions you know and actually there there are some instances where i think i would appreciate something more if it wasn't portrayed mm-hmm. you know accurately the way that we think read about or whatever. I mean, I think one of my favorite examples is I love the Apple Plus show Dickinson. It's like a retelling of Emily Dickinson's like the height of her writing and her life story. And, you know, when you read about her, like in the history books, you read that like she's a recluse and that she was some, you know, tortured soul who never left her her room in her father's house and she was just like so sad I think like the show puts it in a great way they said you know Emily Dickinson was the original sad girl and I was like oh I mean okay that's interesting way to put it and then you know you see this like anachronistic show where they like breathe life into her and then she's like suddenly this like vibrant character who has you know like a passionate love story that apparently in the history books you would just they, they completely ignore and you're like mm-hmm. oh so yeah because her great poetry had to come from somewhere you don't just like i mean mm-hmm. i suppose you could write great poetry if you didn't have like life or whatever mm-hmm. but you know the way that we just kind of ignore that in the history book so i don't think i'd really want to see uh something like super historically accurate on well accurate quote unquote what we mm-hmm. perceive to be accurate um about her so i'm like no you're right Uh, there's there's definitely
2: i mean there's there's room for both right you can have the historical sort of like super attention to detail like almost documentary style like retelling the story you know really faithfully but then like the way people put their different twists on it and reinvent it for different audiences different times different concerns is is fascinating Um, it's one of the reasons why i think about games like video games in particular. Where there is usually a pretty strong narrative that has been sort of put on it by a modern creative team to tell a story they want to tell. Think of something like Hades or uh, Phoenix, like Immortals Phoenix Rising, or something where they've turned a, a story about ancient gods into a sort of meditation on modern family affairs and various things. That that's um that's really cool. Totally agree.
1: Totally agree. So I just want to end the interview portion of the podcast. I have a couple final questions. When you were either in un- undergrad or grad school, did you attend office hours? I don't
2: know, actually. Um, oh, I definitely did in... Ooh. Hmm. Okay, so undergrad, I think probably not. Well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. I just can't remember. I must have when I was a grad student. I I need to talk to you about something. Can we arrange a time to meet? Rather than like, oh, what time is that professor's office hours? Let me go head along. Yeah. I don't know, actually.
1: (laughs) No, that's totally fine. So since you don't remember whether you attended, you can frame this one in your experience as, you know, Mm -hmm. a professor yourself. So, you know, do you have maybe a particular you know favorite memory of when someone came to talk to you or you know something that you found just particularly valuable great office hours experience but as from you know from the other side of things
2: Mm -hmm. I really enjoy it when students come to office hours to talk about something that isn't like a directly course related thing I, something that you said in class reminded me of this totally different thing or this thing from my other classes, right? Where they're bringing together knowledge that comes from like different parts of their like educational experience or whatever, or different parts of their life. Like, oh, I heard in this course that isn't about games that you do games. Can we just talk about games for a little bit? Yeah, of course we can talk about games, right? That sort of thing where it's like not, it's not specifically about the field, but it's about like a kind of broader intellectual life i guess like i I, that that's the kind of thing that i really i think i like and enjoy the most other than yeah because if it's just like okay so i have this question about the essay it's like okay all right let's go or i don't understand this this thing or i just want an extension it's like okay yeah sure sure that's great i'm happy to i'm always happy to see students to talk about like anything but i think when there's something that shows that they have really been thinking about the stuff that came up in the in the class or whatever, and they're bringing, to, bringing it together with other knowledge from from elsewhere. Because that's one of the cool things that we don't often think about as professors, I think, is that all of the students in our classes are not just taking our classes. They're taking a whole lot of other cool classes. And I really like to see it when that knowledge like comes together. Like, oh, I was taking the psychology class, and this thing came up in there. And how does that relate to... Thucydides is like well I, I don't know that's a great question let's think about that tell me about the thing you 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 know tell me that's this thing that you've just learned about and then we'll talk about how it might apply to this thing that we're both engaged in here right that sort of stuff is I think where I I sort of get feel most excited about it afterwards.
1: Mm-hmm. And the last question I really have is I suppose you know if you were to make a good case and convincing students like why it's a great idea to come to office hours, you know, like, what would you say? Like, why, why, you know, why should someone come to your office hours?
2: It's the best way to make sure that I actually know your name <laughs> in a big class. It's, it's, I mean, as much as I would like to be able to memorize everybody's name, it's just so hard to actually do that, especially in a big class. So when you, have a conversation with somebody like office hours that I got the come to office hours, go to office hours, people like if you're listening to this and you've never been to an office house, one of your professors, just go along, just introduce yourself, just say hi. Right. It's great to be able to kind of put a face to a name on a roll book or whatever. And to like, have some sense of like these faces that you recognize all the time. And that sort of like personal connection, I think can be really can make the university experience and the intellectual life of the university far more, like a like your own right so that you're part of a community um and that is often something that is really valuable that people just don't do right if it's yeah it's a it's an intellectual community make the most of it while you're there and that includes chatting to people and to be honest if you're not talking to me in my office hours i'm probably just fiddling on a game to be honest
1: like
2: do this quick game design thing in my office hours or whatever oh look a student to talk to great
1: I love it. Keep it simple. <laughs> I want to know your name. Come talk to me. Yeah. Yes. yes. Ultimate, ultimate. Yes. Ultimate answer. So at the end of each podcast, I ask every single guest of mine if they would indulge me and read Percy Shelley's wonderful poem, Ozymandias. And then after you've read it, it doesn't need to be, you know, the longest, like, you know, analysis you've ever done. But if I could just get, you know, your general thoughts on like, you know why do we love why do people seem to connect with this poem like why do we feel that it's important you know does it impart some sort of you know really interesting lessons or is it just beautiful like you know go to town with it
2: cool well it's good that you don't want the longest analysis i've ever done because that would be like a 300 page book <laughs> it would be here for a while so i haven't i haven't read this previously. I should have practiced it in advance, but I didn't.
1: No, it's better that you didn't.
2: Yeah. I I thought that might be part of the authenticity of it.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional
0: your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs.
1: LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
1: Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
2: My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. I really like it. It's really good. I kind of got tingles actually when I got to the my name is Ozymandias bit. It's just so, yeah. So there's this thing where the pedestal says the words and it says my name is Ozymandias and then the way that I read it, I was continuing down to the lone and level stand, sand stretch far away as if that was the voice of Ozymandias speaking. Because it's not entirely clear where his words end and where narrator starts again. But I like that ambiguity, I guess, that maybe the narrator is saying these things and then all of a sudden he's passing off to Ozymandias who was saying these things, including some things that are sort of describing the scene, which is an interesting kind of like liminal space there. This always makes me think of the Sisters of Mercy because they use the line, the lonely level sands stretch far away in um, in one of their songs. And so I do have, like, this is a poem. I, I do kind of think about it a lot, but, I, but the end part, right? Those last five lines are what I usually think of, or maybe the last six. Like the framing, I met a traveler who said this thing and then this is what he said and in the middle of that is another speech is the sort of those nested narratives inside each other which is pretty cool. I've been thinking about that a lot recently with various games actually that use like an interesting framing device around the narrative and then sometimes like stories within stories like the Odyssey. Um Yeah. I think that's all I have to say.
1: <laughs> that's really good though. I mean, I've not heard it like that. Like, literally have not heard it like that. So, yeah, I it's my favorite poem of literally okay. all time. I don't know what it is about it, other than it just, it, it like, evokes this sort of, like, ancient idea, right? And then you're like, mm. hmm. I know, I, honestly, I've read this, and I've now heard it read to me more times than I can count. And every time, I still get tingles. Like, I still just get mm-hmm. all, like goosebumps and excited i'm like ah asamandias yes it's brilliant it's
2: definitely something as classicists not just as classicists but particularly as classicists probably we are very aware of the thing that we study not being around anymore and that relationship with the idea of like ruins things that are past and now things that have are upheld as having a certain type of cultural value separate from the reality in some ways because later culture has m- built this stuff around it right that says this is valuable which is interesting to think to think about when we think about like ruined structures um as well as like intellectual structures like the idea of the ancient world or the idea of classics and so this meditation on someone very powerful in the past observing that his power is still there but not there
1: yeah, no, it's the idea that it, mm. it's definitely like a political piece by Shelley saying, you know, like power is fleeting. It's also, you know, you can't do it alone. You know, he mm-hmm. he thought he was so great, but like, you know, if you look at his civilization, which he thought would last a thousand years or forever, it's mm-hmm. gone. It's all buried in 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 sand. And like, we wouldn't even know about it if it weren't for you know, archaeologists coming and digging around. And, Uh you know, we wouldn't even know the king unless he had the artisans make the statue of him. So, Uh you know, yeah, you're great, but you can't do it alone. And um, power's fleeting. So I love that interpretation. And using that interpretation, the last question I ask on the podcast is, you know, if you consider our civilization today, you know, is there like a modern Ozymandias, something that we think is like amazing and going to last forever that, you know, maybe realistically and like, I wanted to say like a thousand years, but I'm also like, LOL, glo- global warming might just kill us. in like a hundred. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go with like a hundred, 200 years, something, not maybe like a thousand, but like in like 200 years, you know, are we going to look back and just be like, were we insane? Like, what were we thinking? You know, like, so is there anything like that?
2: I I mean, probably everything. Like if you, if we were to time machine in the future, or if we were to go back in a time machine, 200 years in the past and tell people in the 1822, Hey, this is what people are (laughs) going to, here's what we think in the future. And here's all the way, the many ways in which we think that what the way that you do things now is, like bad <laughs> uh, or misguided, there'd be so many things. I I don't I don't I know if I can pick just one, except maybe the entire sense that our civilization is the. I don't want to say pinnacle because I don't know if people necessarily think that. Although some people like Fukuyama's end of history, like liberal democracy, is the ultimate things like okay well you thought that in 1989 even now into like 30 years later is like that doesn't sound very prescient actually without even going to, to 200 or a thousand years civilization is constantly changing like the the way that humans organize themselves is constantly changing it's going to keep changing so i don't think that we have anything whatever we think whatever we think is going to be our ozymandias probably will be <laughs>
1: Great answer. Yeah. No, (laughs) I, and I love that question because I've gotten so many great different ones. I think someone said that someone said like capitalism and then someone else was like iPhones and I'm like, Oh, that's brilliant. So yeah. Yeah. Great answer. Yeah. Anyway, it was so <laughs> lovely to talk to you. I'm so excited that we were able to connect and do this. I know, you know, yep. the, the the time difference, luckily, actually isn't too bad between like Greece and New Zealand. I was I would uh-huh. be more stressed if I was in the U.S., like literally what 17 hours or something crazy behind so um it's It's easier to
2: calculate it the other way for the west coast right like the five hours difference yeah and i was like five hours difference yesterday yeah (laughs) that that makes it really quick
1: you know it's so funny because like as like historians classes, looking at, you know, all these things. And especially after looking at like Ozymandias, I was just thinking to myself, you know, I was talking to a friend in L.A. because we wanted to schedule some time and we couldn't make it work because they're ten hours behind Mm me. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, this is like modern day time travel. Like, why are we imagining time travel when we're already doing it? Because we finally agreed on a time it would be Mm -hmm. 9 p.m. for her. So at the end of her day, going to bed. And it was 7am for me. So when we finally connected, you know, here I am kind of groggily with my like, you know, morning <laughs> everything. And I'm just like, okay, uh-huh. I barely had my tea, but we're going to talk. And here she is like settling in after a long day with the hats <laughs> and you know, she's all like, uh-huh. Oh, you know, I just, I basically, you know, just changed into my pajamas and I'm like, what is what is time what yeah so yeah. yeah it's it's like time travel so you know I'm like can you tell me what, what does my future look like yeah you know, how many hours <laughs> in the future like you know am I gonna am i gonna win the lottery today am I gonna run into luck uh, like, I didn't I God.
2: didn't look that up i didn't uh, I didn't get a, uh, a Greek newspaper uh, Darn. <laughs> I'm also like <laughs> I'm watching the Giro d'Italia at the moment. So I'm also like watching that delayed. So I'm like aware of something that's happening in the Mediterranean, but like 12 hours after it's already happened more than like 18 hours after it's already happened. So
1: oh, I missed my chance. So, well, I guess I'll just have to take the future as it comes.
2: Yeah. um, Well, like Ozymandias.
1: How terrible. No, I'm kidding. So anyway, yeah, no, it's been a a pleasure to to talk to you today. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can have you on sometime in the future.
2: Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Trireme Transit is now departing
0: ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.